Okay, so we're now we're in the kind of the second part of this series of, of spiritual warfare. And in this second part, it's going to be three weeks on the enemies of the Christian faith or the enemies of God, the enemies of Christianity. And so what we're going to do is look at each one of them for three weeks. Now, I'm not naming them yet because I'm about to ask you what they are. But um, this next three-week section for weeks three, four, and five of this series are going to be on these three enemies. So there's my question for you, which is, what are the three enemies of the Christian faith? If you had to say them, what they are, these three enemies of God, three enemies of Christians, what would you name? Okay, well, if you have your Bible, I'm going to take you to some verses that lay out all three of them in the same passage. If you have your Bible, go to 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter, if you don't know this, is very tied to Jude. The content is very connected. Uh, it's likely um, whoever the authors were of both of those, right? if it is Peter and Jude, that they had some correlation between what they said, because even the wording is very close um, to, to each other. But let's look at 2 Peter 2, verse 4. Okay, See if you can pick out... I'm not going to talk necessarily about what it's trying to talk about here, but see if you can pick out the three enemies in this passage. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds." Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. And do you see three enemies in that passage? Could you pick them out? If you go to Jude, Jude 6, you'll hear the same idea. Right? And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way indulged in gross immorality when after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. I know those are very wordy. Could you pick out the three enemies in those two passages? I'll go to one that's a little clearer. Okay. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 2. We saw Ephesians 2 last week, but we'll do the first three verses of Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You see the three that is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay, here in Ephesians 2, it says the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? It's Satan. Satan. Right? The spirit who is working in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan. So there's three enemies of the Christian faith of, of God, of Christians. It is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I, I don't know why they're listed in that order. Uh, it's not necessarily the order I'd put it in that makes the most sense. But it seems to flow off the tongue the best. And it's the way that it's usually talked about. So it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. So this next three weeks is going to be on those three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. <clears throat> um, and the way to think of them, in my opinion, 
the way I like to think of them is at three different levels of connection as a person, right? As a person, you have all these different levels of connections to things. And in this way, we have enemies at three levels, okay? And I'm going to use these terms. We have enemies at the individual level, which is the flesh. It's ourselves. We have an enemy in ourself that the Bible calls the flesh or the sinful desires, or it'll call it the old man. It's all these different terms are used, but there is this enemy, this traitor within ourselves that is against God. And that's an enemy at the individual level, right? It's, it's, it's just you. You are your own worst enemy. Maybe you've heard that before. In many ways, that is a true statement. At the individual level, the level of flesh, there's an enemy, okay? And then you have the world, and I'm going to call that the communal enemy. Why is that the communal enemy? Because what is the world? Well, the world is the systems of humanity that are aligned against God. It's the way that individuals in their own fleshy, fleshiness uh, work together to do evil. Okay, So it's a communal evil. It's not just at the level of the individual. It's all of the systems of humanity that work together to, to go against God. Okay, So it's at the communal level. That's the world. At the communal level, we have an enemy. And that communal level is... The world is our enemy. And then lastly, I'm going to use the word cosmic. We have a cosmic enemy. This is the third level, right? It's like outward concentric circles. At the individual, we have an enemy. That's our flesh. At the communal, we have an enemy. That's the world. And at the cosmic level, we have an enemy. And who is that? That is the devil. The devil, the devil as the leader of the realm of evil, as the one who stands as the leader of the kingdom of darkness, this, this being who stands at the top of evil, right? <clears throat> Carl Payne is a, uh, is a pastor from, from around here. Actually, I'm not sure what church he's at now, but when, when, I, was, uh, when I knew, him, uh, knew of him and, and read his work, he was at uh, Antioch Bible Church. In, here in Seattle area. And um, uh, he has a great book called Spiritual Warfare. He's also the ch- chaplain, or at least was, again, I can't say now, but used to be the chaplain for the Seahawks, which was interesting. Um, but Carl has this wonderful book called Spiritual Warfare. And it's, it's actually pretty interesting, too, because if you remember from last week, we talked about the different um, views, these three evangelical views. Uh, Carl is a reformed guy in terms of theology, uh, but he believes power encounter, which is very interesting. He, he is a strong proponent of, of the power encounter system, even though he has a reformed theology. So he's an interesting mix. Uh, but he has a great book called Spiritual Warfare that I, I even though I don't, I don't believe Power Encounter, um, it's a great book and it's very helpful. And, uh, and he talks about these enemies, but he uses different terms. And what he talks about is uh, the way that these enemies are trying to get you to sin or the way that they solicit you to sin. And so what he uses, where, whereas I just use these terms individual enemy, communal enemy, and cosmic enemy, he would say that we have an internal uh, solicitation to sin, right? Internal, meaning inside, which would be our flesh, an external force, which would be the world, right? So you walk by, you see a billboard of a, of a, you know, a scantily clad woman or something, and it's like, oh, well, that makes me want to sin. That's not something that came up from within you. That's something that the world has put out that is is trying to engage you to sin, right? That would be an external sin, right? So that would be the world. And then supernatural, a supernatural solicitation to sin. If you have a voice tell you to go kill someone, for example, and it's not from your own mind, and it's not from coming from inside you, it's a supernatural voice, that would be an example of a supernatural solicitation to sin, right? That would be equivalent to what I called cosmic. So Carl uses those three terms, internal, external, and supernatural, and, and those are great. They're very helpful. The, the terms I'm going to use as I go through this series will be individual, 
communal, and cosmic, these three levels of enemies we have. We have an enemy at the individual level, it's our flesh. We have an enemy at the communal level, and that's the world. And we have an enemy at the cosmic level, and that's the devil. Okay, And we're going to start at the broadest picture part and move to the more uh, intimate. Right, So we're going to start at the cosmic and look tonight at the devil. And then next week we will look at the world, the communal enemy, and the week after that we'll go to the individual and look at the flesh. Okay, So we're going to start with the devil tonight. So our cosmic enemy is the devil. So who is he? Who is the devil? Who is the devil? What names have you heard around him? Well, one obviously is devil, so we'll talk about that. What other names have you heard as it relates to the devil, like identities given to him? One is Satan. It's a very common name applied to him. Lucifer is another one. Lucifer gets talked about. Another one is the serpent or the dragon, right? This this image from, from both the beginning and end of the Bible, right? The serpent dragon idea. Okay, well, let's, let's go through those. Let's look at each one of those. Again, I think I already said this even just in this series, but I love names. Um, and I think they're valuable and important. They give meaning. They have uh, something to say in them, right? A, a name has something to say about who it's given to, right? And so in this case, we're going to look at these names. We'll start with Satan because it's the oldest, okay? It's the oldest. This shows up in the Old Testament, Satan. Satan shows up, I think it's only like 30 times in the Bible or so um, when I was looking it up. But it primarily shows up, uh, uh, the biggest number of times it shows up is actually in the book of Job, right? Job 1, Job 1. Job 1, if you go there in your Bible, verse 6, it shows up. Job 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. Satan also came among them. So there is Satan. Well, what does Satan mean? It's actually a transliteration. It's not a translation. Satan is not translated from Hebrew. It's actually just the Hebrew word put into English letters. The Hebrew word behind Satan is Satan. Satan. It actually has a meaning, too. What does it mean? It, it's a generic term, actually. It generically means an adversary or an accuser. Okay, so when we hear the name Satan, we're thinking of someone who's an adversary. We're thinking of someone who's an accuser. Where's examples of when it's used? Uh, it's actually used, like I told you, generically in the scriptures. So let's look at 1 Kings uh, 5. 1 Kings 5 uses it. In 1 Kings 5, you have Solomon. He's making an alliance with King uh, Hiram. Hiram of Tyre, and when he makes this alliance, he's talking about, hey, you know, my father David was unable to build this house for the name of the Lord. I'm going to, because while my dad had all this war, I'm at peace. I've had peace on all sides. And he says this in verse 4, but now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. What's it say in Hebrew? But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither Satan nor misfortune. It just means adversary. It's used generically here. He's not talking about that Satan is not attacking him right now. He's just saying generically, no, there's no one to oppose me. There's no one who's adversarial to me. That's what he's talking about here in 1 Kings 5. When I was looking up Satan... In, uh, in the Bible, using uh, uh, you know, a computer program to look, do a word study, I found this one. This is a cool one. Uh, I, I like this one. It's a little, little secret to keep in your pocket. I thought it was a good one. Numbers 22. It's always good when, uh, it's always good when you're doing a verse lookup 
and the numbers help you remember. It's Numbers 22, 22, okay? Numbers 22, verse 22. Remember, there's, uh, in Numbers 22, there's Balaam, this false prophet, this evil prophet. He's a prophet not from Israel, and, and he's being hired by this foreign king um, to curse Israel, right? I think it's the Moabite king. Uh, Balak is, is hired him um, to, to curse Israel. And, and remember, there's this odd story about him riding his donkey, and, and and it's kind of a random story that often gets told because it's kind of fantastical, and um and so it's maybe one of these you know Bible stories kids might hear about the talking donkey right the donkey talks and that's all anyone remembers from the story really is that this donkey turns around and tells Balaam like I was protecting you and and all of that story but if you go to the beginning of the story, verse twenty two. Numbers 22, verse 22, God was angry because Balaam was going, doesn't say where, it said where he was going earlier, but that's not important to where we're at. It says, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. Who is Satan in this passage? Who is adversary? Remember, adversary is the word Satan. Who is Satan in this passage? Satan is the angel of the Lord. Satan is the angel of the Lord, according to Numbers 22.22. The angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as a Satan against him, an adversary, right? Obviously, I'm not talking about the specific being, Satan, that we address as as Satan. Um, I'm saying in this passage, it's interesting because the angel of the Lord, we would never think this. The angel of the Lord is called a a Satan, an adversary, right? And who's he adversary to? He's, He's an adversary against Balaam. And it's not saying he's evil. It's not saying he's this being Satan. It's just generic. He's just an adversary. He's standing adversarially to him, okay? That's a good example. <clears throat> but coming to Job, Job 1, what's going on in Job 1? Actually, you know what? Hold on. I have one more example. I forgot this one. Zechariah. Let's go to Zechariah 3. Zechariah 3. <clears throat> this is a, an interesting one. Okay. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So Joshua was the high priest, and he's standing before the angel of the Lord, and it says Satan is standing at Joshua's right hand to accuse him. Remember what I told you Satan means? It means adversary or accuser. In Hebrew, this says Satan was standing at Joshua's right hand to Satan him. Satan was Sataning him. Right? That's like just like in English, how we can make uh, verbs into nouns. Like, uh, I read a lot, so I'm a reader, right? And we do that. Satan is Sataning him, right? He's accusing him. The accuser is accusing him. Satan is Sataning him. That's the Hebrew verb, Satan. And then it becomes a noun, Satan, as an accuser or an adversary. Okay? That's Zechariah 3. Okay, back to Job. Job 1. So, Satan, in a crazy story, Satan is approaching the throne of God to have a chat with the Lord. And what is their chat about? Their chat is about this guy, Job. And the question is, is Job actually a righteous man? Is he really righteous, or does he just do this because God is so good to him? Satan points to Job and says, God, if you weren't so good to this guy, he would curse you to your face. Take away all the good things you've done for him, and he will no longer be a God-fearer. He will no longer worship you, Lord. He will curse you to your face. And that's what Satan's 
doing, right? He's making an accusation. He's the accuser. He's Satan, the accuser. And he's coming to God to accuse Job of what? Not really being a righteous man, but only being righteous because of the blessing of God. He's just righteous with bad motive, right? He's actually a bad-motived person who just does it because there's good things he gets from God by being a good person. And if he wasn't getting all these good things from God, he'd stop being a righteous man immediately, right? And then he'd hate God. That's what Satan's accusation is. He's actually accusing Job's character. So that's the name, Satan. Okay, devil. Let's talk about devil. Devil... Uh, is the Greek behind the word devil is diabolos, diabolos. It's where, you know, in Spanish they get diablo, um, where that word comes in. It went through Latin and then became devil. So it's really the same word as diabolos. It just became devil in English after it went through Latin and then to English. And it's just the actual Greek translation of Satan. They found a word that meant approximately the same thing as Satan, in Hebrew, and then they they took it to Greek. <clears throat> and so it means, uh, literally, it means to throw a cross. It's from a word that means to throw a cross. But uh, it's used in um, kind of a metaphoric sense, almost like you might say, you could say in English, I th- you, you threw an accusation. You know, you could use that terminology. It's used like that. So even though it means literally to throw a cross, it actually came to be understood as someone who was an accuser or someone who was a slanderer. You know, they would talk bad about people. They would accuse them or slander them. And so uh, Diabolos just became the, the Greek translation of the word for Satan. So Satan and devil is, is basically means the same thing, one in Hebrew, one in Greek. Lucifer is more interesting. Lucifer. Uh, Lucifer shows up in one place in the Bible. It's in Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14. If you go to Isaiah 14 in your Bible, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. Star of the morning is where Lucifer comes from. Lucifer. In Hebrew, it's actually Helel. Helel, I think. Helel. And it became Lucifer as it went through the Latin translation by Jerome. Jerome translated the Bible from the Hebrew of, here in this instance, in the Hebrew of Isaiah, translating it into Latin, he translated star of the morning into Lucifer. The reason being, uh, most people think star of the morning refers to the planet Venus. Venus is the brightest thing you can see in the sky. So it was kind of treated like the morning star, the one that would bring about the dawn, um, because it was this brightest thing you could see in the sky. Um, Lucifer means light bearer or light bringer. Okay, Lucy, the Lucy prefix is light, and then feras in Latin is uh, to, to bear or to bring is the way to understand it. So actually Lucifer means light bringer or light bearer because it was kind of thought that this star led the dawn, right? So it's the light bringer. And that's what Lucifer means. And the reason Lucifer started getting applied to Satan is because of this passage, Isaiah 14, 12, people assume it is about Satan. It's about uh, an example of, of what happened to Satan. It's a piece of scripture that tells us in the, in the you know, annals of time what happened to Satan. So I'll read it to you. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the dawn, You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the amount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So far, it sounds like the popular um, Christian traditional idea of Satan, right? He He was proud. 
He was too proud, uh, so he thought he'd be better than God at being God. And so he fell from heaven, right? This verse, verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven. So he fell from heaven because he was a rebellious angel who thought he was a better being than God. So far, it sounds pretty pretty good, up through verse 14. Okay, then verse 15, Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, which is Hebrew for the grave, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home? Okay, now it's saying he's a man. So if it, that's interesting. If he literally fell from heaven, and we take that literally, it also is that he's literally a man. Okay, well that starts to sound a little weird, but it's, maybe it's just poetic. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. Okay, now it's talking about kings of nations. But you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be united with them in burial, because you have ruined your country. You have slain your people. Okay, now it's saying something about a country and nations. So that seems odd for Satan. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. Okay, now it's talking about a lot of things that sound very human. You have offspring, uh, your sons. They're going to take possession of the earth and fill the world's cities? Okay, that doesn't sound like Satan so much anymore. Verse 22. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and survivors, offspring and posterity, declares the Lord. What's Babylon? Okay. Well, if you read Revelation... People are assuming you're talking about Rome and Babylon's connected with Satan. So it must be that this is still talking about Satan. If you read the passage, this is a judgment on Babylon. If you go back all the way up to verse 4 of chapter 14... Let's go to verse 3, actually. It will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved. That's talking about Israel. When you're done with your days of pain and turmoil, Israel, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And you will say, and then it goes on to this whole thing we read. I think this is talking about the literal king of Babylon. This is a judgment prophecy. He hasn't been judged yet, but one day when he is judged, Israel will bring up this taunt, according to the day of Isaiah 14, I mean. In the days of Isaiah 14, it hasn't happened yet that the king of Babylon has been judged. But when you do, you will take up this taunt against him. Who's the king of Babylon? King of Babylon in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. And actually, if you read Daniel, this stuff sounds exactly, exactly like the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar is talking about in Daniel. Remember the Lord, it says, makes him like a beast of the field for a while. Why does, why does the Lord do that to him? Well, according to the text of Daniel, he does it to him because he thinks he's above the Most High. That exact language. He's one who has lifted his throne as if it were above God's throne. He's one who is arrogant and proud. And he's one who will be cut down. All of that language that we saw and what we just read, it's the exact language that's used about Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. So my opinion, people have read back into this that this is about Satan. I don't think it's about Satan. I think it's about 
Nebuchadnezzar. It's about Babylon. It's truly about Babylon, the actual country, right? This is about Nebuchadnezzar. That how you have fallen from heaven, yeah, it sounds like Satan if you take it literally. It's just talking about his pride. You know, he's how you have fallen. It's a taunt. They're taunting him. Oh, you used to be so mighty. You used to reign in heaven, Nebuchadnezzar, and oh, how you've fallen. Oh, how you've been cut down. You said in your heart, I'm going to ascend to heaven, raise my throne above the stars of God. But nope, you're going to the grave. You're going to the grave like an any mortal man. Okay? I think it's about Nebuchadnezzar. I think it's about a human king who is arrogant, who believes he is great. And to be fair, Babylon ruled over the ancient world. So um, it makes sense that he's an arrogant man. Uh, he, he thinks he is ruler of the world, right? That's the point. That's the point. The Lord is saying Babylon's not going to rule forever. He's going to judge Babylon. Okay, so <clears throat> I don't think this has to do with Satan at all. And I think using Lucifer to connect to um, Satan in the name of Satan, I, I don't think it's there. I just don't think it's in scripture. So that's the only passage in which Lucifer shows up. So all of that history since the translation of the Bible by Jerome into Latin for the last 1500, 1600 years, however long it's been. All of that tradition about Lucifer as Satan, I think, is totally not scripturally accurate. Lucifer, according to this taunt, is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Now, what has happened that made people think it was Satan, I think, in part, is that they read Revelation back into Isaiah, not not the other way. You know, John, when he writes Revelation, is using a lot of imagery from Isaiah Isaiah is not using a lot of imagery from John. John reads Isaiah and uses the imagery of Isaiah, not the other way around. So when he writes about Babylon in Revelation, he's talking about Rome to some extent, right? Babylon being this kind of emblematic city of evil, right? Babylon becomes this symbolic city that always represents the city of evil, the world. It's this worldly evil city. And so he specifically means it as Rome in a unique way because that's the current world power that's oppressing John, right? And John in the church. And so he uses Babylon to represent Rome. But in another way, it's just metaphoric, right? Babylon represents all the evil cities and all the evil empires of of the world, right? It's always represented all the evil cities of the world. And, this, and it represents this future evil kingdom that will come one day also in Revelation. Uh, I mean, man, Babylon today could easily be said to be America, right? Like it's an empire. It controls huge swaths of the world. And it exports its evil to everywhere else. I mean, my point being, don't be too hasty on Babylon lest you find yourself in it. Right, you you could you could be in Babylon right right now. I, I in my opinion, I would say I might be in Babylon right now, <clears throat> um, because it's it's the systems of the world that are are against God. It's this evil city, right? And that's what it's come to represent. Okay, so <clears throat> uh, that's Babylon. You know, just one more comment. It's the same way that Jerusalem is used. It's not necessarily referring to literal Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem that has come to symbolically stand for the city of holiness, right? The, the, the good city, the holy city, the city of God's people. And it may be literal in some sense, but it also is this symbolic entity that stands for the city of holiness as opposed to Babylon, right? There's New Jerusalem, and this is all in Revelation, New Jerusalem and Babylon, the city of good, the city of holiness, and Babylon, the city of evil, right? So that's how I'd understand it. Lucifer, I think, is a is a um, pointless as a name for Satan. It has to do with Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Lastly, the serpent and dragon. Well, the serpent and dragon imagery is used, right? Revelation 12. We read this earlier in the series. In Revelation 12, verse 9. This is the first time all of these names get connected. 
oddly enough, again, all these names I'm bringing up are all connected here. You know, it's not Lucifer. Lucifer's not brought up here. But John connects them all. Thank God it's in Scripture, right? Because otherwise we wouldn't have them all connected. But now we know there's a place in Scripture they're connected. Which is this. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This serpent, this dragon, is connected with the devil and Satan. It's one being. All these names for one being. So what's the serpent and in, in dragon word that is used for him? It literally just refers to the creature. In Hebrew, it's nahash. Nahash, it means snake. Like just the creature, a snake. Um, it's this image that's come to stand for Satan, for the devil. So um, we'll get to Genesis 3 because that's where that serpent imagery comes up. But first, before we do that... Uh, Let's, let's talk a little bit about Satan's tactics, okay? So if Satan is our great enemy, if we know he's an accuser and an adversary, which we've already seen, we need to know what his tactics are, how he tries to attack Christians. How does he try to hurt the kingdom of God? <clears throat> let's go to John eight forty four. John eight forty four. We just went through John. Uh, in in this church. So, uh, you know, as of like eight months ago, we would have been on this passage. Remember in John 8, he's having this argument with the Pharisees and they're talking about um, being disciples of Abraham or disciples of, uh, of Jesus and then, you know, being, excuse me, being Abraham's children or not being children. And, um, and remember, Jesus says they're not children of Abraham. They're not children of Abraham. They're children of someone else. And they say, well, no, God's our father. And Jesus says, if God was, my, if was your father, you would love me. He's saying this to the Pharisees. <clears throat> and he says, no, you want to do the will of your father, not my father. And then remember, he drops this awesome line on them where he says, no, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Wow. So Satan from the beginning was a murderer and he is the father of lies. So what tactics does he like to use? Well, murder and lying. From John 8, 44, we learn he likes to murder and lie. Murder's a mystery to me. I don't know exactly what to make of it. In one sense, I think it's, it's pretty clear that he is a spiritual murderer, right? If, if God is life... And Satan leads away from God. He leads people to their death. right? He leads them away from life towards death. So in that sense, <clears throat> symbolically or metaphorically, spiritually, however you want to describe it, he is a murderer. Um, I also think it's possible. I can't confirm this. This may be speculation. I think it's possible he might have power to kill. Uh, it doesn't mean that he can do it willy-nilly, but maybe he he bodily has killed people. I, I don't know. I don't know what that's referring to specifically. But whatever the case, it's clear from Jesus' words, one of his tactics is to murder. It's to kill. Okay? Just as another of his tactics is to lie or deceive, because he's a liar. He's a murderer and a liar. <clears throat> okay? And also it could be he inspires people to kill. The whole point in this passage in John is that they want to do his desires like their father and they want to murder just like he was a murderer. Why? Because they're trying to murder Jesus. So maybe it's making the point that the Pharisees who are trying to murder Jesus are being like their father who's a murderer. Their father is giving them those desires to murder. <clears throat> it could be that as well. Okay. So there's two more tactics, murder and lie. 
So we have accusing, we have opposing, that would be adversary, right? If he's an adversary, he opposes. He accuses, he opposes, he murders, he lies. What about Genesis 3? Let's go to that serpent image. Actually, let's stop somewhere real quick. Genesis 1. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, in the beginning. Verse 1 of Genesis 1. What is Satan at this point? In the beginning. Well, according to what Jesus just said in John 8, he was a murderer from the beginning. At this point in Genesis 1.1, he's already a murderer. In the beginning. From the beginning. Somehow in Genesis 1.1, Satan is already a murderer. Now, when it says God created the heavens and the earth, it doesn't necessarily mean in Genesis 1.1 that he's talking about everything that's ever existed. In fact, we know uh, from other places in Scripture that angels were created prior to those things, at least angels, because it refers to the sons of God um, rejoicing in Job, for example, rejoicing uh, when God set the limits of the ocean and when he was making creation and putting the clouds in their places and doing all these wonderful acts of creation that it says the sons of God rejoiced over those things. They sang about them. So um, it's not necessarily saying that, uh, you know, this this very easily could be talking about the material elements of the world, you know, the heavens, the skies, and the earth, the land, right? Uh, And that's clearly what it goes on to talk about, right? Separating the skies and and creating the land. Um, But we know, according to Jesus' words, John 8, 44, in the beginning... Satan's already a murderer. And that's important for our context in spiritual warfare because it reminds us that actually when creation goes on, we're already at war. There's already a war between good and evil. Now, evil is not eternal, right? Satan is not eternal. He's not equivalent to God. This is not an equal fight. God is infinitely higher than Satan. But evil is ancient. It is not eternal, but it is ancient. It is pre-creation. From the beginning, Satan is a murderer. Okay, So that means when creation is going on in Genesis 1 and 2, there's already a war between good and evil. There's already that war going on. And, and oddly enough, uh, it makes perfect sense that that is the case because when we get to Genesis 3, the serpent shows up out of the blue. There's no indication who he is or what it is or why he's already trying to uh, harm God's creation, why he's trying to hurt humans, why he's trying to get them to do evil. There's no explanation of that at all. It, it just happens out of the blue when you get to chapter 3 of Genesis. Um, but Jesus makes it clear when we read those words from him, that, that that war was already going on. And since that war was already going on, it makes sense that the serpent shows up in chapter 3 to try and disrupt the good things God was doing. Because what did God say about creation? Many people misquote it. Many people misunderstand it. They think God is saying, it was perfect. It was perfect. And everything was perfect. Everything was ideal. It was exactly as it should have been. Is that what God says in, in chapter 1? No. What he says is that, that it was good. God sees that it was good, not that it was perfect, not that it was everything it needed to be, not that everything was perfect in its box. No. He sees that it was good. That's a very different reality. So somehow in God's good creation... By chapter 3, Satan's already at work. And my guess is it's because he already was a murderer at the beginning in Genesis 1-1. So when he shows up, he's already hell-bent on disrupting what God's doing. He's ready to harm humanity, to destroy it, to try and turn it against God. Okay? All right, let's go to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Okay, the serpent shows up more crafty than any beast of the field. He says to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. 
Is that what God said in Genesis? No. It's a lie. God did not say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Okay, he lies to her. He's acting as if he's heard God say you shouldn't eat from any tree of the garden. And so he asked, "Uh, did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree of the garden? No, the woman said to the serpent... From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Right? So she says, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. A lot of people make a a big deal about this touch it. I don't know why they do, generally. Um, I guess because it's added. It's not something that God says specifically. He says, don't eat from it. He never says, don't touch it. I think Eve is just probably just saying it. She's just rephrasing it. You know, she shouldn't, shouldn't eat from it or touch it. Or maybe she's adding in the fact that she knows, hey, I probably shouldn't even go near it if I'm uh, not going to eat from it. You know, why risk it? I just don't think it's that big a deal that she says it differently. But some people think it's a big deal. So you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent, again, lies. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the tragedy of this line that he says in verse 5? Eve believes Satan that it will make her like God, knowing good and evil. The sad thing, the tragedy, is that she's already like God and doesn't know it. She doesn't know it. What did God say about humanity in Genesis 1 and 2? He said, in my image and likeness, I have created them. She's already like God. She doesn't need to eat the fruit to be like God. She already is. She doesn't know that she already is like God. That's a tragedy. <clears throat> so, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, what is it saying about this tree? Good for food and delight to the eyes. What's it saying about this tree? Most people read that and assume that means this tree is really, really special. Uh, God told us not to eat from it, but man, did he make it look good. Whew! That's a good-looking tree. It's not what it's saying. It's not what it's saying. <clears throat> it looks like, when we read it in English, um, that this is, wow, this is a really special tree. It's been set in the middle, and it's really beautiful, and it stands out from all the other trees. It's, it's got good food, better food than all the other trees, and boy, I just want to sit and stare at it. This wording right here in 3.6, good for food and delight to the eyes, is the exact wording that is used of every tree in Genesis. Of the trees in Genesis 1 and 2 when they're created. It's the same language used for all trees. All the trees God made in Genesis 1 and 2 were good for food and pleasing to the eyes. They had delight to the eyes. The actual point is the exact opposite of what most English readers read this and think. They read this and think, man, this is a really special tree. It's really beautiful. And man, it's tempting. No. It's actually the exact opposite. It's just like any other tree. And that is the thing that makes Eve question it. It's not that it's really, really special and I'm mm, I'm so tempted. It's the exact opposite. What's so special about this tree? It's just like every other one. If God lets us eat from every other tree, why not this one? It's just like them all. Why shouldn't I eat from this one? Okay, good for food, a delight to the eyes. The attentive reader will notice that that was already said about all trees. It was already said about all the trees. Excuse me. 
So, let's go back to Genesis 2, verse 9. And by the way, if you want to see where that verse is, Genesis 2, verse 9. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree. That is what? Pleasing to the sight and good for food. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. And then when you get to Genesis 3, she saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes. It's just like every other tree. So she's like, what's the big deal? It's just a tree. It's just like any other tree. What's unique about it? It was desirable to make her wise. Why? Because it's going to make her like God. She didn't know she was already like God. And what she do? She's given two interpretations. She's given God's interpretation and Satan's interpretation. Which one does she believe? Satan's. She believes Satan's. She is deceived in part. But at another level, she's willing to make her own decision. Right? She actually goes and and seems to examine it herself, right? When the woman saw what the tree was, she goes and examines it. She makes her own decision. And so when she makes, partially she's deceived and partially she makes her own decision, what's she doing? She's rejecting God's interpretation. God's interpretation of the tree is don't eat of it. She makes her own interpretation. It's Good for food, a delight to the eyes, and I want to be wise. It's desirable for making me wise so that I can be like God. And that rejecting of God's interpretation is exactly that self-definition that she makes. Her own interpretation is, is exactly what sin is. She makes her own interpretation and does not trust God's. So then what she do? Well, the action follows the interpretation. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave it also to her husband with her, and he ate. Okay? <clears throat> Let me give you a second. Uh, you've seen one uh, tactic of Satan in this passage, which is lying again, right? Deceiving, that lying part we saw in John 8. But another one that's often missed when it comes to this passage and is really important, and boy, is Satan having a field day with it right now in the age of COVID. Um, this age where no one is, is, is seeing each other at all, uh, one of Satan's great tactics is to isolate people. It's to isolate people. It's to get them alone. Okay, what is this story uh, when it's happening, who is this? Who is the story happening with? It's happening with the serpent and Eve. Who's missing? Adam and God. Now, one of those is obviously a more preferable option than the other, but both are important, and both would have been good. Neither Adam nor God are there. Satan gets Eve alone. To have his conversation with her. He does not wait until they're all together. What would have happened if Eve would have said, You know what? That's interesting that you're saying that, serpent. Um, Because you say that that I'm not going to die and God says that I am going to die. Let me just ask him about it real quick. Hey God, can you come here? I'm talking to this serpent. What if her husband had been, you know, there, present, and she had gone, you know what, Satan, I I need to consult with my husband before I make a decision on this. This seems pretty important. I'll probably discuss it with him first. Can you hold on while while I think about it? My guess is if either of those things had happened, this whole thing wouldn't have gone off the rails. God and Adam are never included in this conversation. It is solely between Satan and Eve. It's the power of community to protect us. 
Satan loves to isolate because when we are alone, we lose discernment, we lose wisdom. He can deceive us more easily. He loves to isolate so that he can give us his interpretations and his ideas and his thoughts. And and we can make our own determinations and we can stop trusting God's and all of those things. Community is a protection against that. If she had been in community in this moment with her husband, if she had been in community with this moment with God, I don't think she would have eaten. I think that would have protected her. And that's the power of community. And man, like I said, uh, community is in shambles right now. And everyone is isolated. So I am positive Satan is having a field day with his tactic of isolating in these days. But that's another of his tactics. And then the last one. This one's pretty straightforward. We'll go to 1 Thessalonians 3. 1 Thessalonians 3.5. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, this is Paul talking, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He's afraid that Satan, the tempter, might have tempted them to do what? Uh, To believe bad doctrine and to abandon their faith. Okay, that's what he's talking about specifically here. But the point that I'm trying to make is just that one of Satan's tactics is to tempt. It's to tempt people, right? To to test them. To, To try and get them to slip up, right? And that's... Something that he obviously does. I mean, that's why we call it the temptation of Jesus when you have it in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, beginning of Mark. I can't remember which chapter. Now, it must be Mark 1, but... Um, sorry, hang on one second. Yes, Mark 1. I wanted to make sure I was right. Okay, Mark 1. Um, yeah, so whether it's in Luke 4, Matthew 4, or Mark 1, uh, the temptation of Jesus, that's what we call it, because Satan comes to tempt him, to test him, to get him to slip up, to make a mistake. And that's another one of his tactics, is he likes to tempt. Interestingly, um, that testing word shows up all the time in the, the Synoptic Gospels. Actually, it shows up in John 2. And I think it's interesting that the first time it shows up is always in the temptation passage with Satan. The next people who start trying to tempt or test the same Greek word behind it in in uh, in Greek is, of course, the Pharisees. And I think there's a theological point there. I think the theological point the gospel writers are trying to make is the Pharisees are working for Satan, right? Just like Satan came and tested him, and it uses that same word, the next people to test him or tempt him are the Pharisees. They, write, they keep coming to tempt or test him. There's no, uh, there is no doubt in my mind that the gospel writers had a theological point there to make about Satan testing and then the Pharisees testing. They're tied through the, what they're trying to do to Jesus. Okay. <clears throat> so what do we have now, these tactics? We have a lot of tactics we've seen. We have the tactics of opposing He's an adversary of accusing, of murdering, of lying, of isolating, of tempting. So the question then is, how do we fight against the devil? How do we fight against the devil? What would you say is the biblical method of fighting against the devil, according to the Bible? Let's go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's the murdering, if I had to guess, the devouring, the consuming. What are you called to do? Verse 9. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We're called to resist him. And I I don't know why. Maybe it's just me. So maybe you don't have the same experience. This word resist, I, it seems, um, I don't love the translation of it because it seems more, I don't know. 
I guess I described it like uh, like Rocky. Have you ever seen Rocky? It's like, oh, if I can just if I can just take enough blows, if I can just get hit enough, if I can just last fifteen rounds, I'll make it to the end, and then I'll survive. But I'm bloodied and beaten up, and I got destroyed, right? Like, but I made it. Uh, that's the that's the connotation I get when I hear that word resist. It's like, oh, just like put your arms up and protect your head, and just take the blows. That's not the word. the The Greek word behind it is stand against, literally. The literal word is stand against. Now, it has the connotation sometimes of resisting or opposing, but resist does not give me the image I I think the word is trying to give in English, in my opinion. I, I think it's oppose him. I think it's stand against him. It's a word of war. If he's an adversary, oppose him. Just like he opposes you, oppose him. Resist him doesn't have the same connotation to me. Oppose him. Stand against him. Firm. Be firm in your faith. Standing against Satan. We're called to fight against him. That's the biblical response to the devil. Oppose him. Stand against him. Now, when we come to the other enemies, there may be biblical passages that say other things. But when it comes to the devil, the demonic realm, we're never told to do anything other than oppose it. When it comes to the world, when it comes to the the flesh, we'll talk about how we're supposed to respond to those things. And it may be different. It may be the same in some ways and different in some ways. But when it comes to the devil... The Bible never tells us to do anything other than oppose him, to stand against him, to resist him. 1 Peter 5 had it. Let's see about Ephesians 6, that passage we talked about earlier, the the famous armor of God passage, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Right? Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on that full armor, right? We talked about the struggle, not being against flesh and blood. Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. Oppose, stand against. Take up the full armor. Why? So that you can oppose Satan. So that you can stand against him. And having done everything, stand firm. And then 14, stand firm. It repeats it. We're called to stand against. So when it's when we're thinking about the cosmic enemy, when we're thinking about the supernatural realm, the enemy of the devil and his demons, the Bible is unequivocal, it is clear. Your job in response to the demonic, in response to Satan, is to stand against him. It's to oppose him. It's to stand firm. It's to resist him. Okay, so when we think back to last week and we talked about those steps to oppose him, our job is not to cower in front of him. Our job is not to run away from him. Our job is to oppose him, it's to stand against him. And that's why when we talked about the, the method of fighting him in Matthew 4 that we learned, quote scripture out loud, command him to leave, do Jesus-y stuff. When we talked about that, we were talking about the way to fight Satan in a way that opposes him. We weren't saying, oh, just when a demon shows up, run out of the room. It's scary. No, you stand firm. You stand your ground and you push back, right? You fight against. You stand against and you oppose. That's the method of dealing with the devil, according to the Bible, okay? No matter what tactics he's using, you stand against him. Okay, that's what I have for us this week. I had one more piece I didn't get to uh, last night. So when I when I did service with with uh, the church, so maybe we'll go through that next week uh, when we talk about the world. But for now, that's what I have. Let me pray, Heavenly Father. Thank you again uh, for me making it through these these recordings as we try to. Um, Give this teaching to people who might hear it. Lord, I pray that people would be blessed by it, that they'd be changed by it, that, Lord, they would um, 
understand their role, to oppose the devil, to stand against him, to fight against the demonic powers, Lord, so that we can plunder his house, that you bound him and we're doing the work of plundering when we share your gospel and and bring people into the kingdom of your beloved son and, and out of the domain of darkness, Lord. Uh, help us to do that well. Help us to do that um, with love and, and kindness and goodness towards people. Help us to love people like you did. And would you convince us of who we are in you, in Christ, and that we have been seated above all rule, all authority. So we're thankful that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Lord, help us to learn how to deal with these things uh, according to the Bible, according to your word, so that we can do them adequately, efficiently, that we can do them um, in a way that pleases you. We love you, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.